Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest this week is renowned French scholar Gilles Capel. Gilles is professor at the Université Paris-Sion-Saint-Lettre, where he is the director of the Middle East and Mediterranean program. Gilles Capel is also the author of numerous books and articles on Islam and the Middle East. Gilles and I will be discussing his latest book, The Prophet and the Pandemic, From the Middle East to Atmospheric Jihadism. We'll also be talking about the impact of 9-11, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the return of the Taliban on Europe, and France's relationship with Islam in the Middle East, and much more. And please be sure to stay tuned until the end for an exciting announcement you won't want to miss. My conversation with Gilles Capel begins after this short break. All this develops, and this is the way I I try to analyze it in the book, what I called atmospheric jihadism or jihadism of atmosphere i.e. as opposed to Al-Qaeda, which was a sort of Leninist pyramidal system, or as opposed to Daesh, which was a network-based thing, where people were giving orders and uh, to, and, and uh, those orders were executed. There was a chain of command, whether it was vertical or horizontal. In the new phase, we have no chain of command. I mean, it's put on the web, people go on the web and decide to act. This is extremely difficult to to deal with. Gilles, welcome back to On the Middle East. Thank you so much. In your most recent book, The Prophet and the Pandemic, which is available already in French and Italian and soon in German, Greek and Spanish, You refer to the events of last year, the pandemic and the oil price drop, as hitting the region with what you call cataclysmic force, an accelerator to trend lines, which you go on to explain and we'll get into here today. But let's start with how China in the Abraham Accords, in addition to the pandemic and the oil price drop, have fractured the Gulf. Tell us about those changes in the peninsula. Well, I believe that, uh, you know, uh, the pandemic uh, uh, had a tremendous effect on oil prices and uh, never ever in history had the the barrel gone down to minus $37. So uh, even though it has bounced back since then, it was was a shockwave for the uh, oil monarchies. And, you know, the people said there, okay, we're going to deal with uh, renewables, but it was a sort of Bukra, inshallah, tomorrow, inshallah, issue. Now, uh, they decided that they had to take it very seriously. And uh, I, if you think of the United Arab Emirates or Saudi Arabia, for instance, they decided that you know they should invest in renewables, that they should lead the post-oil issue instead of being frightened with it. And uh, investing in, the, in, in post-oil meant uh, get, having access to new technology. And uh, where would you get this technology? In the West in general, but also in a place nearby that is Israel. And uh, in my view, this was one of, uh, of the main drivers 
behind the Abraham uh, Accords or, or agreements. You know, uh, when you're United Arab Emirates and you sit on a, a thousand a billion uh, dollars of uh, in sovereign funds, uh, then uh, you know you have uh, you have a significant amount of money to, to spend. Uh, the same for Saudi Arabia, and uh, therefore uh, the uh, the agreements have uh, not changed radically uh, the balance of forces in the region. But you know uh, they created a, a new system of alliances uh, with the West, uh, Israel, Egypt, Jordan, who are already uh, together. But then with the Emirates, Bahrain. That means that the Saudi Arabia, that Saudi Arabia had given its nihil upstart, uh, the Sudan and, and Morocco, uh, which made this sort of uh, exchange between uh, the Sahara and, and Palestine in a way. And this, of course, uh, weakened a new sort of, of alliance in the, in the region uh, that uh, was confronted and confronting another alliance, uh, which was the pro-Muslim brothers or pro-political Islam alliance that included Turkey, Qatar, two Sunni states who are uh, significantly pro-brothers and also brought uh, into the bandwagon uh, Iran, which was, uh, you know, strange by uh, the standards of 2011, for instance, when when uh, Sheikh Qardawi, the leader of the brothers from Qatar, would lambast the Iranians because of the Bahrain events and said, no, no, this is an Iranian thing and we, we are against that. Uh, actually, when you remember well, uh, the, uh, the Islamic Republic's ideology was, was based to a large extent on, on Muslim brothers' literature because the Muslim brothers on, were not particularly Sunni. I mean, they, they were Sunni, many of them, but but uh, uh, some of the uh, Iraqi ayatollahs uh, were with them and wrote with them. And Khamenei himself translated two books of Sayyid Qutb into, into Farsi. So you had those two alliances that sort of uh, started to, to coalesce one against each other in the, in the Middle East. And uh, they sort of changed uh, the landscape. Uh, then, Adding on that, uh, you, you had the, uh, uh, the, the sort of uh, the development of, uh, of, of, of Chinese policy in the Middle East. I mean, it had been prepared by the one belt, one road uh, uh, system, uh, but then it took more and more importance. And politically, uh, it uh, suddenly burst out in the region when uh, Iran, uh, decided to, to sign an agreement, a sort of unequal treaty in reverse with China, uh, because China, you know, was eager uh, to uh, set a foot in Iran because Iran was under U.S. sanctions and it would take benefit of it. And, you know, U.S. policy was still thinking in terms of, hey, we're the, we're the hyperpower. And uh, whoever does not abide by our rules cannot do business and whatever. Well, now, if you don't abide by U.S. rules, uh, China uh, is, uh, is, is uh, happy to open a bank account for you, but uh, except that the, uh, the terms and conditions are rather harsh on, on you. Uh, so th those things have changed. And um, 
And you know, uh, there's also another front that has opened more or less with, this, with China in, in the background, which is the, the Nile Valley issue with uh, Ethiopia, Ethiopia, which is back, bankrolled by China, deciding to big this big dam, build this big dam, and the Egyptians uh, being in panic because they think there's going to be far less water in the, in the Nile. So, um, you know, all those things are new. And what is even newer is that the U.S. either is not interested or helpless or couldn't care less. And all that ended up in the, in the uh, pullout from, from Kabul to some extent, uh, which uh, may not be uh, of great interest for the American voter because after all, people are sick and tired of the endless wars. Uh, and uh, maybe no one will remember and, uh, when it's time for the midterms in November 2022. But both in the region and in, in Europe against the US allies, uh, which are confronted with migration waves uh, from the eastern and southern shores of the Mediterranean, and uh, where there is a raging debate in Europe between those who, who say, like President Macron, that uh, NATO is brain dead, and others like Mrs. Merkel, who's the, who's, who is the lame duck to be Chancellor of Germany, that uh, we can't survive without the NATO protection. So this has uh, reignited the, the debate nowadays in, uh, in, in the whole of, of Europe. So we, we are in the brink of a, of a, major, a major change, uh, you know, because we, we still dealt to a large extent uh, with uh, the Middle East, with the categories of 1945, you know, the February, uh, Valentine's Day, 1945, the 14th of February, when uh, FDR went and uh, met uh, King uh, Abdelaziz Ibn Saud on board USS Quincy, moored in the Bitter, Lake, uh, Bitter Lakes of the Suez Canal. And, you know, they made the deal, my all for your protection, my protection for your royal. Now things have changed significantly. The Cold War is out. There's a, a new contender, China, which is now present in the region. Europe is looking for her place. It's questioning the U.S. alliance. So we're, we're in a brand, it's, it's a brand new era, which is, which is starting. And not many people have a clue as how it's going to uh, come out. Jill, I want to get back uh, in a little bit to the U.S. role and how that's being perceived. But let me let me stay on the Gulf for one second here to follow up Saudi Arabia, which which, you know, very well. There seems to have been uh, a division or split with the UAE on oil recently. How do you see that playing out? And as oil prices begin to creep back up, do you think that Saudi Arabia and perhaps some UAE and other countries in the region will be able to continue this emphasis on renewables and shifting their economy away from dependence on the oil sector again as oil revenues begin to increase. Well, I just heard uh, Prince Turki Al Faisal on an interview with CNBC recently saying that uh, uh, the kingdom had been blessed with oil but he had also been blessed with sun and, and wind. And uh, that for the time being, uh, they could provide very cheap oil to the world that would keep the world uh, going with that. 
but they were ready also. They were preparing to provide it with uh, with oil and sand. So, you know, they, they'll probably uh, play on on both uh, on, on on both issues on uh, on both types of energy. Um, but uh, they they are getting ready for the post oil uh, post oil uh, phase. But as long as oil pays. Uh, you know, they, they can't tap on it. There's no, no doubt about that. But as far as the competition between the two, I guess that, uh, you know, they're, they're, the, you know, one country which is interesting for that is Egypt. Uh, if you look at the, at the maps in the book, you'll see that, you know, in 2020, the, the, the economy of the region was, you know, in, in, was sluggish, really, except in one country, Egypt, which was very strange. You know, I've lived in Egypt and I, I did my PhD. I know the I knew the country rather well, and I would not think of Egypt as as a, a boosting economy by no means. And suddenly, the only country which uh, which uh, was uh, uh, having a, a dynamic uh, balance of payments and the like in 2020 was Egypt. Why? Because Egypt has attracted tremendous investments, both from Saudi Arabia and from the Emirates, who want to turn it in, so, in, in a sort of manufacturing country, a sort of mini China of sorts, if you like, with 100 or 120 million inhabitants. No one knows many inhabitants. And um, so uh, it's located ideally on the Nile, can, uh, on, the, on the Suez sorry, Canal and the Reds, between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean, which is, what, which is one of the major conducts of, of the One Belt, One Road thing, of the, of the Chinese uh, influx of everything into the Medi through the Mediterranean into Europe. And if you look at the map of Saudi Arabia also, which you have in the book, this, those maps by Fabrice Ballange, which are extraordinary, um, there is the, he has mapped Vision 2030 of uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And when you look at that, you see that the, the, the center of gravity of the kingdom is shifting to some extent to the Red Sea. Uh, it's still, I mean, the oil is still in the, in the Gulf, but the uh, neom is based, is on the Red Sea. It's close to Israel, where, you know, the software comes from. Uh, it is a place with a lot of sun and a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, of wind. And um, it's close to the Suez Canal, which is, which is going to be, you know, a, a main manufacturing area, which is being transformed thanks to, to, to this influx of capital. And um, there is competition in, uh, in Egypt between both actors. And uh, I think that Marshall Sisi is, make, is taking all the benefit of this uh, competition between his two, uh, uh, his two godfathers. And this is how he is getting a lot of, of weaponry also uh, for his own purpose. There's also a difference that, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia, as far as I understand, is mainly uh, interested as uh, words by Prince Turkey, which I just quoted, uh, meant uh, with uh, uh, sun and, and wind because it's a big territory, whereas to produce green hydrogen, whereas um, the Emirates are more into atomic and nuclear uh, issues to produce hydrogen. Gil, you have a section in your book entitled Populist Islamism and Erdogan's Splendid Isolation. And throughout the book, you come back to both Erdogan's ambitions and the limits of those ambitions. You, you call it recklessness. And tell us what this all means for 
Turkey's role in both the Middle East and its relationships with Europe. And start, if you would, where you start in the book with the symbolism and impact of Erdogan's decision to re-Islamicize the Hagia Sophia. Yeah, which is something that, you know, not many people outside Turkey noticed that it took place on the 24th of July, uh, or they, they knew, but they didn't pay any relation to the fact that the 24th of July is the day of the Lausanne Treaty, which was the 97th anniversary. And the Lausanne Treaty, uh, uh, you know, sort of created the boundaries of modern Turkey, and it twisted the arm, thanks to the military might of Ataturk, uh, twisted the arms of the, of the allies, of the, of the Taurus allies of the World War I, who had uh, uh, chopped into pieces uh, the former Ottoman Empire, like just like they did with the former Austrian Empire, and uh, you know the victorious Ataturk, the father of Turks, the Ghazi, the conqueror, as the, his, he was called, was the man of the Treaty of Lausanne that then cancelled the Sèvres Treaty of three years earlier, and um, Erdogan chose that day, so he put his feet in the in the boots, in the military boots of Ataturk, in order to twist the secular Ataturk's arm, because it was Ataturk who turned uh, uh, Hagia Sophia into uh, uh, into a museum. It had been turned into a mosque in 1453. Uh, with uh, the conquest of Constantinople by Mehmet Tufati. It was originally a Byzantine uh, cathedral, as, as you know. And um, so to him, it was, it, it was a, a means to, to, to use Ataturk's legacy, military legacy, against Ataturk's um, uh, secular uh, legacy. But he did not mention that he was criticizing Ataturk. He played on both things. And, I mean, uh, what I, I did not check exactly when the announcement was made, but uh, uh, the rumor in, in Turkey is that it was made public at 2.53 uh, p.m. And as you know, uh, it was in 1453 that uh, uh, Constantinople was conquered by the, by the Ottomans. So uh, this is, I don't know, I mean, uh, whether or not this was true, but this was part and parcel of the of, of, the, of the legend. The, what, what this meant was that it sort of galvanized uh, the fact that in you know, Muslim spirits worldwide saying, hey, I, I'm, I'm the new exponent of the strength of Islam. Uh, I'm the successor to the, the Ottoman caliphs. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, this took place uh, at a time when because of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, there was no one in Mecca at the pilgrimage because the Saudis had uh, been very careful uh, um, followers of the sanitary prescriptions, and uh, uh, there was social distanciation at the uh, at the pilgrimage, and uh, so there were a handful, a thousand, some a few thousand people from all uh, Muslim nations in the world who were gathered, but you know. The images of, uh, of the pilgrimage season, which usually show 2.5 or more million Muslims gathered, which is, you know, displays a tre tremendous strength of, of Islam as, as not only as a, as a religious, but as a, as a political phenomenon. You know, this was to be seen in 2020 in Istanbul with the crowds chanting Allahu Akbar 
uh, around the mosque and the imam uh, there uh, holding the, the prayers with, with, a, with a saber in his hand rather than in Mecca, which was clearly uh, something uh, that uh, was uh, uh, checking the, uh, the Saudi supremacy of the, of the, over, uh, over Islam at large, uh, which was something very important. And this took place while Erdogan, uh, uh, you know, Turkey is a member of NATO. It's the second uh, army in terms of the uh, number of soldiers in NATO after the U.S., uh, had bought S-400 uh, uh, ground-to-air missiles, uh, Russian-made. Uh, this led to a crisis within NATO because then they were deprived of the F-35 assault bombers uh, because the U.S. Uh, uh, were afraid that um, then the Russians could uh, get the software of the F-35s and that it would be uh, the end of it. And um, so you had a member of NATO, which remained a member of NATO and who was clearly playing uh, with uh, enemies of NATO, uh, not to mention uh, relations of, uh, of Turkey and of Turkish intelligence with a number intelligence with a number of jihadists. Uh, some of them who were subsequently uh, arrested in Europe were, were trained uh, by uh, sort of Western methods, if you wish, uh, and not by uh, former uh, Soviet uh, methods. So all this raised a number of doubts and uh, were, were discussed in Europe. There were also uh, some uh, Turkish uh, gangs in Europe, like the Grey Wolves, who became extremely active, uh, chasing Armenians in France, for instance, or Kurds. Um, Milligurish people who had instructions to vote uh, when they had the European citizenship uh, together with their Turkish citizenship for or against some um, uh, governments in Europe and uh, uh, a number of ministers from Mr. Erdogan's government actually were barred to enter countries where they went campaigning uh, like uh, Switzerland, uh, Germany, uh, Belgium, the Netherlands, and the like. So this created a, a, a new a new atmosphere. I mean, it, um, in a way, Turkey uh, under Erdogan sort of tried to to play on the on the Ottoman heritage very much, and also this was not only uh, Erdogan became a uh, a player on its own in the Syrian crisis, but also in Libya, where, as you know, they moved former Libyan rebels uh, to Libya, uh, former Syrian rebels, sorry, they moved former Syrian rebels uh, with the uh, Turkish uh, proxy uniforms to, to Libya, to the rescue of, of the Tripoli troops. I mean, like the Bashibuzuk of old of the, uh, of the Ottoman Empire, which was something that had not been foreseen by, uh, uh, by, by the Europeans and the, the French and the Italians were, were bickering over Libya and while they were doing so uh, endlessly and uselessly, then you had Turkey on the one hand and Russia on the other, uh, who put their, their mercenaries, both Syrians, because uh, the uh, Russians uh, brought demobilized pro-Assad militias in Libya who fought on Libyan soil, demobilized uh, rebels. 
deal in this book as in past books and articles, you go deeper than just about any other author I can think of on the impact of these trend lines in the Middle East and the Islamic world and what they mean for Europe. And you have a section called From North Africa to the Benelux or Suburbs of Europe or France, in particular, uh, you're based uh, there in Paris. Help us understand the trend lines in North Africa and how they are playing out on the continent. Well, North Africa is... Uh... Is is also caught uh, was also caught in 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 the 2020s in a in in a number of, of turmoils. Um, uh, there was a big issue in Algeria with a very old and uh, very aging president Abdelaziz Bouteflika, uh, who was finally ousted by a major revolt called Al Hirak, uh, the movement in Algeria. But due to, uh, due to COVID-19, there were no more demonstrations. And then you had the direct impact of the pandemic on, on uh, North African and Middle East politics, as I mentioned before. Uh, and uh, the military in, uh, in Algeria uh, used COVID-19 to, to control and put down the, the demonstrations and ch choose a president of their liking to succeed to Bouteflika. But this led to a, a, a sort of stalled Algerian society. And uh, Algeria is, is stuck uh, with its uh, uh, exclusively oil and gas exporting uh, dependency and uh, is, uh, is unable to, to, to promote any, any reforms of the governing system. So this is uh, leading to a major crisis uh, of identity in, in the country. Um, everybody in Europe fears that the, the country is going to, uh, to undergo a, a dark period like, uh, you know, we witnessed in the, in the, 19, uh, in the 1990s in the, in the jihad days, which of course means, and this is what Europe fears when anything happens in the eastern or southern shores, is going to lead to uncontrolled uh, waves of illegal migration. And while this happened, uh, Morocco uh, made a, a step aside to some extent with uh, the signing of the Abraham Agreements in, in December 2020. Uh, the uh, Western Sahara question had been arbitrated by the UN as, you know, uh, uh, as something that needed a referendum under international auspices to decide of the fate of Western Morocco, which is under uh, Moroccan uh, tutelage. Uh, and uh, with the agreement, the uh, Abraham Agreements, uh, President Trump's administration recognized Morocco's, uh, Morocco's sovereignty on Western Sahara. And as, as uh, compensation, if I may say so, uh, Morocco was the fourth country joining the Abraham Accord and exchange ambassadors with Israel. And the like, uh, Morocco has a very long history of relations with, uh, with Jews in general, because they were, it was a country where Judaism prospered for a very long time. There are uh, some things like, if I remember well, 800 uh, Jews from Moroccan descent in Europe, many in France among our Sephardic population, many also in Canada. And... Uh, so, uh, you know, it was not something artificial, it was something that dealt with a, 
uh, one of the, the deepest elements within uh, the complex and rich Moroccan history and identity. Uh, but nevertheless, this was something that uh, definitely added to tensions with, uh, with Algeria. And, uh, and nowadays, the, the two countries are at loggerheads with uh, relation, uh, diplomatic relations that were uh, uh, broken recently. As of Tunisia, uh, Tunisia was the only demo democracy that remained out of uh, uh, the, the uh, so-called Arab Springs of uh, 10 years ago. Um, but the problem with uh, Tunisian democracy is that the parliament would be dysfunctional. MPs would more, be more interested in doing their own business than in common good. And um, so there was such a crisis uh, accelerated by COVID-19 that President Kaid Sipsi decided to dissolve the parliament and uh, to, uh, to start a temporary period, which has been extended, uh, where he has uh, full control of affairs, which is something that to some extent was welcomed by a number of the uh, Tunisians who were fed up with poverty and stability and the like, but which is of course raising a number of questions as to the future of Morocco, which of us are of the, uh, raising a number of questions on the future of Tunisia, which had experienced in the past already two authoritarian presidents uh, uh, who had started in earnest, but then evolved as uh, as dictators, i.e. Uh, Bourguiba and then, uh, then Ben Ali. So all this added to tensions, added to uh, immigration, illegal immigration to Spain, to uh, through Spain and Italy, uh, mainly to then France, Belgium, Germany and the like. And uh, that, uh, you know, led to a number of incidents, including uh, one uh, assassination by a uh, uh, just a uh, recent uh, Tunisian immigrant who had crossed the Italian-French border uh, two, year, two days before and stabbed three people to death in uh, 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 Our Lady of the Assumption Notre Dame Basilica in Nice, uh, near, near, near the church where I was baptized, actually. Not this one, but the one nearby. And, um, and then this sort of... Uh, uh, raised again fears in, in Europe of, uh, of a, a tide of violence in you know, Western Europe and France in particular were hit by ISIS or Daesh. Uh, we had uh, thousands of young people from French descent, whether they were converts or uh, children of immigrants, of North African immigrants who went to and fro to Syria. We are now having this huge uh, Maxi trial of the 13th of November 2015 uh, events, uh, the Bataclan uh, attacks, which led 130 people dead in Paris. The trial will last until, uh, until next uh, summer. That is to say, it will cast its shadow over the whole process for the presidential election. Uh, President Macron's mandate uh, ends in April and uh, he will probably run for re-election, uh, and uh, uh, and then the, uh, our uh, parliamentary elections will take place in June, and and the trial will not be over yet. And when you think of what went on last year with the Charlie Hebdo and the hyper kosher killings trial, 
uh, it is very worrisome because uh, those trials were taken in hostage because as you, as you know, as you remember, uh, the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists uh, republished some of their cartoons. Um, and uh, this raised immediately a furious reaction by Erdogan and uh, entrepreneurs of wrath, if I may say so, not only of the Muslim world, but also within France and Europe, people on the web who would uh, publish uh, posts and uh, Facebook and uh, WhatsApp and what have you, um, posting, uh, you know, these are murderers, these are uh, criminals, uh, get out of them. And, you know, and then you had uh, others uh, who had already been radicalized, whether in a radical Marx or through uh, uh, friends and or like-minded people who took it into their arms to uh, to inflict the death penalty on them. And this is how we had this young Pakistani guy who uh, spoke quasi no French, but who saw on, on his cell phone demonstrations in Pakistan chanting death to the blasphemers and then bought uh, a cleaver and tried to kill two people whom he thought were Charlie Hebdo cartoonists. They had nothing to do with that. We had this Chechen guy who, uh, based on this, on, the, on following, you know, the, the following of those same entrepreneurs of wrath, um, uh, decapitated uh, a teacher in a secondary school uh, or in a high school rather, uh, who uh, had shown some caricatures to his pupils so that they could judge and analyze what it meant. Then we had the stabbings in Nice, and all this developed. And this is the way I. I try to analyze it in the book, what I called atmospheric jihadism or jihadism of atmosphere, i.e. as opposed to Al-Qaeda, which was a sort of Leninist pyramidal system, or as opposed to Daesh, which was a network-based thing, where people were giving orders and, uh, to, and, and uh, those orders were executed. There was a chain of command, whether it was vertical or horizontal. In the new phase, we have no chain of command. I mean, it's, it, it's put on the web, people go on the web and decide to, to act. And it's, it's extremely difficult to, to deal with for uh, security services. And this is what led uh, Macron to um, make his, his famous uh, speech at uh, Les Mureaux, um, uh, you know, saying that Islamist, and I insist on the is separatism, was uh, something uh, that was extremely dangerous, i.e. Uh, preaching that, you know, you have to build a separate identity on the basis of uh, 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 particularly rigid understanding of, of religion within a country and divide a country within itself on the base of adherence to, strict adherence to a faith and rejecting all others as uh, impious uh, and believe, unbelievers, uh, infidels, and the like. And this, in its term, developed a new wave of rage because this was not translated into Arabic. Uh, then, or people would say in the Arab world, hey, uh, this is something against Muslim. This is a symbol of French Islamophobia. And that led also to a number of misunderstanding, fury, and the like. And, uh, and uh, with all that, the whole trial of Charlie Hebdo and, uh, and the killing of the uh, Jewish patrons of the hyper kosher supermarket in January 2015 was totally derailed. 
instead of uh, having what is, you know, the aim of the trial, that is, say that you have justice, justice passes, and we have a sort of catharsis, uh, uh, society can, can go back after truth and justice have been implemented, then this was left halfway. And this is the big challenge now for us. I mean, um, that the 2015, November 2015 massacres uh, can be dealt with uh, and that uh, uh, truth and justice can be administered. And which is, uh, which is not uh, anything. It's a big challenge. It's, it's the biggest ever trial in the history of France. Gio, we're running out of time, but I need to ask you, with regard to this atmospheric jihadism, which you describe in your book, and you also describe in an important essay that was published uh, over the weekend in Le Monde and La Repubblica, what will be the consequences of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan for this stage of the fight against atmospheric jihadism? And how are European countries and leadership there assessing and responding to the Biden administration's decision in the context of the fight against jihadists and global terrorism? Well, you know, cybersecurity uh, uh, in the West is largely based on exchange between uh, intelligence services on both sides of the Atlantic. Even though uh, there are a number of questions which have been raised recently about you know, the so-called Gaza symbol and uh, uh, who was spying on who and who's, uh, which allies were spying on, on whom. Uh, nevertheless, in terms of fighting against jihadism, uh, cooperation is absolutely quintessential uh, because information gathered in uh, America or in Spain or something can be crucial to Germans or Italians or French or, or what have you. Uh, so um, the fact that uh, the US is redeploying uh, most of its efforts into China, which is also of interest for Europe, of course, um, raises the fear in Europe that uh, the Europeans will be left alone to deal with uh, the challenges coming out from the northern and southern uh, shores of the Mediterranean. Uh, and uh, this, uh, of course, uh, sort of puts back on the, on the front burner, if I may say so, the, uh, the issue of whether or not uh, the European Union, uh, which now lacks Britain, as you know, and Britain was the other uh, country with a military capacity in Europe, uh, the second one and the only one remaining in the EU now being France significantly, uh, the, uh, to what extent the Europeans should devote more interest for their own, not for a NATO contribution, uh, to, their, uh, to their mutual defense. Uh, if uh, even if Putin did something in uh, Latvia or Estonia, just like he did in Crimea, and uh, if uh, Mr. whoever is president of the U.S. says sorry, hold back later, I'm busy with China, uh, you know the Europeans would would be in in a severe state of crisis, and this is one of the big challenges. I mean. Europe has benefited from uh, the U.S. alliance, and uh, we have uh, most European countries have a very viable social system, pensions, and the like. 
life is much uh, less harsh than in America to some extent. There is a, a wide net of social services here, um, maybe based on the fact that uh, except for France, there was not much money invested in defense. Um, this is a crucial, uh, a crucial issue for, for us. And uh, in view of the new competition, because it's not USSR against China, even though Russia against uh, the US, it's not the USSR against the US anymore, even though Russia is still uh, uh, an issue. Uh, it's now uh, China versus US. Uh, how does Europe and the Middle East uh, how much do they weigh in this in this in this uh, uh, new new battle? Uh, this is one of the big issues, and I guess that this is going to be the matter. Also, it's at the center uh, of German elections, which are being held now, and it's going to be a major issue for the French elections of this coming spring. Gilles, before we go, we have some big news at El Monitor. And it involves you. And I'm going to let you break that news now. Well, absolutely, Andrew. I'm, I'm very glad and honored that uh, El Monitor has uh, asked me to start a, a brand new program for uh, our viewers, our would-be new viewers, uh, i.e. Uh, video podcasts, uh, which I'm going to run uh, every month where I will uh, host uh, the most prominent uh, writers, uh, thinkers, of the, of the Middle East and, and North Africa, and on the Middle East and, and North Africa. And uh, this uh, will start uh, in, uh, by the end of this very month uh, with um, uh, uh, an interview and conversation with Ala El Aswani uh, on the occasion of the publication of his book, of the English translation of his book, uh, which in Arabic was Gumhuri uh, Ka'anna, uh, in uh, in English, uh, it's it has a, another title, uh, the Republic of False Truths, and uh, so we'll uh, discuss uh, over the Atlantic because Allah is now based in New York. Uh, his new book, uh, both from a literary and a political uh, point of view, and I'm I'm sure this is going to to be. A, uh, something uh, very new in terms of what is being done. And we'll, we have a number of uh, other big names also uh, that we're considering for uh, the next uh, podcast. Uh, this is uh, going to be run and then monitor uh, every other month. And let me say that also uh, to me, this is a, a way to express my, my gratitude to Al Monitor because uh, this, uh, this book that you just mentioned, which I hope will come out in English soon, uh, was made possible because I'm, I'm an avid El Monitor reader. And uh, most of the information that can, you can have when you follow the Middle East and you cannot follow everything is very, uh, very uh, ably pr produced in, uh, every day by uh, El Monitor journalists. And it's always a, a great pleasure to, to read it. And I do not know how anyone can follow the Middle East and North Africa without reading El Monitor. So we're going to make it even more uh, consistent now with this, our new program. Jill, thank you for that. And, and I'm very excited about this podcast that you have agreed to take on. Really looking forward to it. The first episode with Ella and discussing his new book is going to be a great start. And you have taught us a lot. 
over the years about Islam and the Middle East. And you've been a good friend to our monitor. And I look forward to this uh, collaboration. And thank you again for being with us today. Thank you for your invitation. We will return after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, I'll monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. Thanks to our guest today, Gilles Capel, and thanks to our producer, Beowulf Roshlin of Two Square Media Productions. And thanks to all of you for listening. And a reminder to sign up for our newest podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, which premieres in two weeks when his guest will be novelist Allah El Aswani, discussing with Gilles the English language release of Allah's book, The Republic of False Truths. And if you haven't done so already, Sign up for our other El Monitor podcast on the Middle East, hosted by myself and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel, hosted by Ben Kaspit. All are available at your favorite podcast platforms. Look forward to connecting with you next week here on On the Middle East. Mm-hmm.